Hello, Matt. Is that Cormac? It is indeed. How are you doing, Matt? I'm fine, mate. Thank you. How are you? Ah, brilliant. Thanks. Brilliant. I'm good. Good. Very well. Great to, great to chat to you, and thanks a million for coming on. Oh, that's no problem at all. I saw you note to um, Steve Partner, picked it up, I think. And, um, you know, I always try to do <clears throat> as many of these things as I can, really. Uh, if people are nice enough to ask me, then uh, why not? It's just a chat and no uh, no problem. That's it. And, uh, you know, when we're not when we're not angling the next best thing, we love to chat about it, don't we? <laughs> yes. And unfortunately, I have to do quite a lot of these, d- that, these days because I live in Norway. And, uh, you know, with the cold weather here, um, <laughs> you spend a lot of time not fishing in Norway. Let's put it like that. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting, actually, Matt. Tell, tell me, tell us about that. Um, you're you're out in Norway at the moment. What what are you up to out there? Well, I, I live in Norway, actually. Um, I've lived here on and off for the past um, almost twenty years. In fact, I came here um, initially, funny enough, in '99 with uh, a friend of mine, Jan Porter, who uh, did some stuff for Total Fishing with me. Unfortunately, he passed away a few years ago, but. Uh, very good lad. And we came to Norway and travelled up the West Coast in an old school bus, Brilliant. fishing for whatever we could find. And uh, to be honest, I mean, at that stage, you know, I hadn't done a lot of the fly fishing that I've done since. And uh, I was mainly a bait fisherman. And um, we, we, we caught fish, but we could have caught a lot more with hindsight, you know. And then I came back again um, in 2004 while making a series of discovery called Lake Escapes. And it was all about short fishing holidays. Yes. And I came here. I came here to the Gowler River to fish for salmon. I'd never tried fly fishing for salmon before. Um, so it wasn't a very productive experience. Um, however, <laughs> I did meet my wife-to-be. And I came back the following year, um, really because I became really interested in fly fishing for salmon as a consequence of my abject failure the year before. Yeah, yeah. And um, and, and I ended up staying here. I mean, we, we run the fishing now. We're, myself and Mrs., we control four kilometres double bank prime fly fishing on the Gowler. That, that's so, fantastic. So do you have a fishing lodge so, out there, Matt, is it? You're running a, running a lodge, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I do. Uh, we, we've been running it now for... The last 15 years, it's uh, called Winterness Fly Fishing Lodge, and um, it's based on the Gowler River, which is, you know, certainly if not the one of the top three Atlantic salmon rivers in the world. And we happen to be on probably one of the best bits of one of the best salmon rivers in the world. And of course, you know, it was natural that in moving here that I would spend quite a lot of time fishing for salmon and fly fishing for them particularly. Um, but I've also done other forms of fishing here in all the years that I've been here. I've, yeah. I've sea fished quite extensively. I've fished for the ferox trout here on, on uh, Lake Nyrsa, which is Norway's biggest uh, river. I've fished a lot for big wild browns on some of the, you know, the Norwegian rivers, big grayling, um, some pike fishing and perch, not, not so much, but, uh, so I've, I've actually fished in, quite a lot of different parts of Norway um, since I came here. And um, my kids were born here in Trondheim. Right. And uh, uh, so we had to make a decision once they reached school age, you know, once Josh reached school age, were we going to live in the UK? 
uh, and school him in the UK and spend a bit of time in Norway or we're going to go the other way around. But, um, we were all things weighed up. We decided for Norway. So um, in for a penny, in for a pound, you know. Yeah, yeah. So it, it, it's a totally different, it's a totally different lifestyle for me now. I mean, when, when, when you look into the fishing lodge and you really look into it, you'll see actually it, it, it's quite a high profile place and it, <clears throat> It's got a very good reputation in the world of salmon fishing. It's a world-class destination. And it gave me the opportunity to to really do the things I wanted to do um, in terms of, of, of trying to improve the treatment of the fish, initiating more catch and release as a management tool, but also just in the way the river was managed and the hours that people could fish and things. And I, I created some, some quite interesting concepts, I think, around that. And the end result is that we, we've got a very loyal clientele. Um, we only have room for eight people a week maximum, so okay. it's quite exclusive. And, um, yeah, my, my, my wife's family have been landowners on the river since pre-medieval times. So um, there's a lot of history here. Um, and so that's where I live. I live in the Gowler Valley, and you know. It sounds it sounds, I'm, I'm sounds fantastic, man. And I'm sure, like you've like you've you've always worked with angling, I suppose, all your life. You're you know you're one of the most famous faces and voices in angling today, and it's, it seems to have always been your life. But uh, I suppose this is a kind of a different chapter. And uh, uh, how how are you finding that? Is it you know is it uh, is it are you living the dream? You know. <laughs> yes. Um, I, you know what? I mean, that's a very profound question, really. Yeah. Uh, Cormac, where am I? Well, I think I, I, I've certainly lived the dream. Um, really, I got to do everything within the sport I love. Um, everything that really caught my attention, the, 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 the salmon fly fishing, perhaps just being, you know, almost the last, possibly the last of the big challenges I wanted to take on. But, I've been given, I've been lucky enough to have the opportunity to do all of those things. So, you know, even if things sort of turn to, you know, sack of the proverbial now, I couldn't complain. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. But, but, but when, when I, when I came to Norway and, you know, uh, met on Marit and uh, we took on this place, which is, you know, it's quite a large property and, at the time, it needed investment and time and loving care, and it needed a, a, a viable business to keep it alive. And, you know, when I look back, we've done all of that in the last 20 years. We've established a world-class fishing lodge. So, you know, I've probably been less in the limelight as time has gone by, but but I, I'm quite happy with that. I mean, you know, I, I still do, do filming projects, and I still write, and I've got, you know, quite a, a popular social media following and so on. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But uh, but I, you know, I haven't I haven't got any skin in the game now, mate. I'm not sponsored by anyone, right? You yeah, know, yeah, so yeah. So I, I'm genuinely independent. I mean, I'm just a bloke who's kind of sort of retired pro angler, if you like. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I suppose you know, uh, will we? Will you? You know, we never retire from angling, do we? You know, uh, you know, as long as we're able to no. chuck, chuck out a line, you know. Oh, I, I love my fishing more than ever. You know, I have to cherish it because I don't get to go as often as I want. Um, but if I get a chance, of course, I'll go. I mean, I was in the UK last week and I went barbel and chub fishing straight away, you know. Yeah, so, I've seen, I seen a lovely post and, on your Facebook, actually, I think it was. And, you know, you notice you just said that, you know, you can't beat, you know, fishing, you know, in your local stretch. Um, 
you know, you kind of, you know, you, you can't beat it like, you know, your local, your local home waters, I think you said it was. And, That's um, you, just, you know, it's just lovely. It's probably really nice for you to come back and do that. It is. It's, 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 it's very nostalgic, you know, because um, I lived in the village um, down, the, down the lane from my mum and dad next to the river for, for a decent part of my life, you know, and um, I left it to, to, to come here. They're, they're still there, but reaching the point now where, you know, they've got to look at moving on and probably getting a smaller place. So, and the village has changed. There's so-called progress with building a more park homes down there and more pollution entering the river and more noise and everything. Yeah. But at the end of the day, um, it still feels like home and it's still my home stretch. I mean, I know it like the back of my hand. That hasn't changed. The river does change every year. There's nice little surprises, you know. Some swims will get a bit worse and others will change slightly. As I found out here in Norway, you know, because when you get the big ice melts in the spring, I mean, you've got the power to move very, very large rocks and completely re-sculpt the river. So yeah, it's slightly on a, a smaller scale, but essentially that's the fishery that I, I grew up on, mate, you know, and so it, 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 it's always got a special place in my heart. And to go back there and fish now, you know, it's just really nice. It's just a nice feeling. Yeah, and, uh, I was I was lucky enough. I, I fished over there uh, again from watching your your shows and that. And a friend of mine was living over in Stourbridge at the time, and we fished outside there somewhere on the Severn. You probably know where it was. It was probably not too far away from Shatterford. And all I remember was the you know the the steam train going by along the river. You know, and we were fishing for. Well, I think it, I think it's up. I think it was Arlie, probably. Could could have um, been, yeah, yeah. It, it, was, it was either Arlie or, or it was either Arlie or Hampton Road, which is where my parents lived and where I lived. Yeah, um, it was fantastic. You know, I just uh, remember it was just just beautiful setting, fishing for barbel. We had a couple of barbel and chub, and you know the, the steam train going by, and like I was just like, sure, this is this is this is heaven on earth, you know. It was just so peaceful and enjoyable, and a lovely stretch of the river. Oh, it really is, yeah. Um, I mean, I've, I've spent a lifetime there, almost an awful one, you know. And it, it, it's, it's been very kind to me over that time. I've had some great fishing down there. And when you grow up on the place, and, and you know in the early days of your fishing career when everything's still a mystery, so you're on a massive learning curve. But, yes, yes. you know, you, you, the, the night before you're going fishing, you literally can't go to sleep because oh, you're bursting with what you're going to do. And and I think you know many of those memories obviously are spawned from those that, those childhood places or your home river, your home venue, wherever you started fishing. And you know I think it, it it'll always be special to people. I know it is to me anyway. Yeah, absolutely. But then I suppose when you flip that around and you go to you know, you, you get the same kind of excitement. You know, when I'm going to fish a new venue or a fish a new beach or going, going somewhere else and you're fishing a new area, I suppose that was the same with you. When you're going to Nor Norway, you're exploring all these rivers. It's all new. It's all exciting. Um, I suppose that can be that can give you such a good buzz as well. Yes. I mean, I, I think you have to change your mindset when you fish over here a bit. Um, you know, I mean, <laughs> as it happens, um, I, I I caught a fish here, which would be, you know, I would catch as class as, you know, a lifetime fish really, and that that was a salmon weighing about fifty five pounds. Wow! And wow. you know, I say weighing about because it was based on measurements, etc. You know. Yeah. Um. Uh. And 
I know a lot about the history of that fish because actually we've got some scale samples and there, there are some sort of unique reasons or there are reasons why it grew as big as it did. Um, and so I've done that, but, but largely in fishing in Norway, I think it's more about the experience. I mean, if I look at the trout fishing and the grading fishing, yes, I've got some very nice fish here. But, you know, a three-pound wild brown trout is much harder to catch here than it is to catch, you know, uh, one in the UK even. Oh, really? Okay, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and there, are some, there are some enormous fish, and the habitat is absolutely wonderful. But there is still very much a fish-killing culture in Norway. Right, okay. The people, have, the people are very fit, um, incredibly fit. And even elderly people are fit. And they regard fishing not so much as a sport, but as a hunter-gatherer type um, right. Right, like a way of life, really, you know? Yeah, there's a lot of fishing with things that are banned in the UK, like otter boards in our area, etc. So I have had some really good fishing for what I'd call trophy brown trout. But, I mean, I've literally had to, you know, tell no one. Because if people got to find out you know you'd be empty you have gone done really? <laughs> within a week yeah. I'm, I'm surprised with that I always thought I always thought up, up around there um, Norway and like the Denmark and stuff I always thought they were kind of just better at you know maintaining stocks and uh, conservation I always thought we're better at that up there than we are in, in no. Ireland and the UK you yeah. know not at all Cormac that, that you know I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why Norway is is cleaner and greener and, and environmentally superior, perhaps to you know other Western countries, and and that's really because of the lack of people. Very heavily subsidised, huge subsidies to farmers here from the government, trade protection, etc. So it's possible to be a small farmer and survive here. Right, and okay. you know, food is very expensive. That's part of the reason why. So there's all these pros and cons. But in my opinion, having been here and looked at, you know, yes, Norwegians are smart with nature. They do have a natural link to it. But I honestly don't think that they treat it necessarily any better than anyone else. And in terms of fish management, they've been dreadful. Right. I right. mean, you've got to remember that that they killed half of their their whole Atlantic salmon population back in the 1950s. I don't know whether you know this story, but I mean, this is the biggest fishery own goal ever scored, right? Yeah. So basically, you've got all these hydroelectric power stations springing up all over Norway. Hydroelectric, big money. Big, 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 big business. So they're damming up these rivers like they're going out of fashion. And lo and behold, what's the problem? Migratory fish can't get up there. So these once great salmon rivers suddenly ain't got any salmon anymore. Right, yeah. So the big wigs, the big wigs, in the the fisheries sort of department who didn't want any trouble off the farmers you know because they're quite a powerful lobby in norway there's a lot of them yeah um they said okay look these are just stupid farmers they want nothing different we'll get some salmon from sweden and we'll put them in we'll put a couple of fish passes in we'll just put fish in so they got these dodgy fish from the baltic in sweden and slung them into um a couple of the west coast rivers and then infected, I think, something like 50% of Norway's salmon rivers with a parasite called Gyrodactylus solaris, which basically 
massively reduces the spawning capacity and the ability of the fish to sustain itself. So, I mean, overnight... Absolute disaster by the sounds of it. Yeah, and think about all the salmon farms that are outside in Scotland. They are Norwegian. They're sea-based. They're polluting the ocean. But I think I was just saying there, you know, what you've got is a mixture. It's like everywhere else. But when you've got so much natural resources and a low population, of course you've got huge areas of wilderness. Yes. But a lot of the really good places in Norway, the really good fishing places, are known about. You know, these people are not daft, and uh, they know where to find places, and they don't mind putting in the effort to get there. You know, but once the summer arrives here, you know, people are just outdoors all the time, and they know how to live outside in nature as well. Got yeah. no problem with it. So as a consequence of that, a lot of fisheries come under pressure in the north of Norway, the very north. Well, you know, and I'm talking up around Tromsø and those sort of places. Then you've got endless amounts of trophy-sized fish. Wow. Um, there is a lot of really good fishing up there. But, you know, for me, it's like an 18-hour drive or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know. And tell me, so you're, so you're stretched then, you're, you're lodged then. So, um, okay, when, when, when is the season anyway? When does that run from? Well, it's very short. It's actually only 13 weeks. Um, our salmon season it starts on June the first, and it ends on the last day of August. Um, and you know, during that time, you know, we probably on our part of the river, which is about halfway, we tend to get our fish um, about two weeks into the start of the season. So really, our our our, our fishing is effectively, I suppose, eleven weeks. Right, yeah, that is quite a short problem. season, yeah. Oh, it's very short, very sweet. But it's probably uh, full on, is it? You're probably you're probably very busy. Yes, it it, it is. It, it's really full on. I mean, uh, you know, at that time of year, of course, it doesn't really get dark. Um, so, you know, people can fish twenty four hours a day. Now, I don't let them do that. Um, I try to introduce a little bit of variety. So, effectively, the way I run it is that. I allow people to fish for 16 hours a day. Right. And basically, I take them off the water for four hours in the afternoon and four hours in the middle of the night. Right. Just so that the whole stretch can get a cool down. Yes, yes. No other stretch does that. They carry on fishing right the way through. Wow. I'm and then on top of that, we, we don't overrod it anyway. And our rods fish for four hours and move to a new pool, fish for four rods and move to a new pool. The way I've got it set up is you're always fishing rested water. And that means a massive amount, really, because you're against the fish, not the other anglers. Yes. Um, yes. But, it, but it is busy. We, you know, we're quite busy here because obviously, you know, the people coming here need, need help quite often and they need knowledge and information. And, and as hosts, myself and, and Honor, we, you know, we devote our whole summer to it. Um, and it's, it's long hours. But yeah, and like, would you get would you get doing. anglers like fishing for that long, sixteen hours? Would you, would they? I suppose they'd stay there all day and night if they could. I suppose. Oh yeah, I mean, to be honest, we don't get many that fish for more than ten to twelve hours a day. You know, once you've gone over the initial thrill of it, you realise that it's a marathon, not a sprint. Yeah. In relation to the lodge, again, I'm just fascinated by this. So, if I so, do you take individual bookings or do you usually kind of a group bookings or? Um, how does it work? Both. Both. Okay. I mean, if, anybody, if anybody's interested in seeing about the place, I've got um, 
quite a popular blog on our website, which is called um, www.dowlersalmon.com. Excellent. Excellent, yeah. And that's our website, which has got loads of interesting stuff about salmon fishing in Norway generally, as well as specifically on Gowler, of course. Very much skewed towards that, but it's got a blog, it's got loads of information on it. Um, and then we've got our Facebook page, which is Wind's Nest Fly Fishing Log. That's Wind's Nest, spelled W-I-N-S-N-E-S, Wind's Nest Fly Fishing Log. Um, and any of the family gather in Norway, you'll know it's just because, you know, you'll find my face on there somewhere. Um, and yeah, I'll, so po- got- I'll post up the links later on anyway to the, to the Facebook and whatnot, and uh, you've, you've everything, well, everything you need to know there. Yeah, thanks. We've, you know, we've got a really active social media and, and a good profile, so um, let's, uh, you know, spread the word. We, we get quite a few, uh, well, not quite a few, we, we, we get a steady trickle of of Irish lads come here. Very good. And like, I mean, what, what's, the, I suppose, expectation-wise, Matt, I know you can't guarantee catching fish, but I mean, is it, is it, are, are you realistically, what what are you likely to catch? Are you, are you going to catch a, a few fish or one or, or many fish or what? I know it depends on the day and the conditions, but, um, <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, no, I, I, I'll answer your question the best I can. And, um, you know, one of the things about this job is, that um, quite often when someone turns up, it just blurts things out. But one of the things I often blurt out is how many fish am I going to catch? Yeah. And if you're a fishing guide or a host, especially in salmon fishing, which is, as you probably know, so unpredictable. Yeah. That, yeah. That's, that's pressure from day one, you know? Yeah. But I've learned to deflect that. Because I've been doing this a long time. And what I always say to people is, I don't know, how good are you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> how good are you catching them? They're there. Can you catch them? And, 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 then, they, and then they look at you and like, oh, is he serious? And I'll say, yeah, how good are you? If you're really good, I'd expect you to catch a few fish. Uh, if that's you're brilliant. moderate, you'll get one or two. And if you're no good, you might get one. I mean, that's the bottom line. But, but to answer your question specifically, um, if people are going to come to Norway generally, and there are a few exceptions to this, but largely, the major Norwegian salmon rivers, and I include Gallery, are about catching big fish. Right. Um, the biggest salmon in the world are in Norway, basically. So when you're talking about your 20, 30, 40 pounds and even bigger, your best chance of catching a fish of that size is in Norway. Yeah. However, however, um, you're not looking at like an Iceland situation. Or my first salmon fishing experience was actually on the morning. Right. You know, okay. And and and, and, and with a fly anyway. And even an idiot. And I was an idiot with fly rod that day. I mean, it, I, I caught I think three or four of them um, the first time I went out. Now that's because the place was absolutely ripping with salmon. You know. Um, yeah. Yeah. And second. Secondly, the fish were all very small, they were all about two pounds. Right, you know, yeah. Um, nice, but, but we're talking here about fishing a different category to that. And inevitably, you know, you ain't going to catch 10 of them in a day. But I would say, uh, of course, we have weeks where, you know, you'll get multiple people will catch several fish each. Um, and that will happen every season. 
I would say if you take an average of probably seven rods a week, you, you know, you'll get the odd no show and, you know, overlapping bookings. So if I take an average of, we get 77 people typically in a season catching between 100 fish in a very bad year uh, and 200 fish in a really good one. Wow, that's pretty um, good. But the average size of the season, I mean, I'm, this is only a rough number because I haven't crunched the number this season, but you're looking at an average size of about 7.6 kilos. So, you know, you're looking at around 17 pounds, 16 and a half, 17 pounds. Jeez, yeah. And, and, and that's allowing for your grills run. So, you know, in early June, when the first fish come up the river, that's when you've got your check best chance of a really big fish and then right at the season end of the season when the big male fish become quite aggressive the fish will be coloured but a lot of big fish are caught in that period but you know um, I mean we catch a lot of 20 pounders here we catch quite a few 30 pounders in my time managing this part of the river uh, which we've been doing now for 13 years I think we've had something like 8 or 9 40 pounders one fifty pounder. That's amazing. Uh, isn't it? Fifty pound salmon. It's it's hard to hard to imagine. It's well, to be honest with you, um, I mean, <laughs> when I caught it, um, there's a really really interesting story behind that. Do you want to hear it? Yeah, for sure. Okay, I'm going to give you a, a sort of world exclusive here. Fantastic. Because I'm I'm going to tell you something that that people don't know. So. <clears throat> Um, a few years ago, um, I had a bit of a heart problem in Norway, which is fine. And, and they monitored me and eventually got to the point where they said, you've got to have a heart valve operation. And that's quite a big op. Mm. And this is, this is right in the middle of the COVID period, which is an additional complication. But to cut a long story short, I was due to have this op in August, just towards the end of the season. But it got postponed to the middle of October because of various problems. I won't go into that. Nothing serious. But it got postponed, right? Yeah. So during that period, I was able to take part in the test fishing program, which I run each year here for the Norwegian Institute for Nature Research, which is NINA. It's a kind of quasi-governmental scientific body. And they monitor salmon. They do a lot of scale readings. And really what they're looking out for you know, is the gene pool by escaping salmon or invasive species, etc. Right, yeah. So uh, I actually get a chance to go out fishing, you know, on the, on the end of the season, then I don't think the season actually on, you know. Yeah. But anyway, I didn't try that hard. I took it fairly easy. I just fished here and there a few hours a day here and there. I'm just catching salmon all the time. It's ridiculous. So eventually, I come down to a pool on our fishing, which is called Oxoid. And it's, it's basically the, the, the seventh pool on our, we've got eight beats, and this is beat seven. And it's, it's a very fast pool. In fact, it's got such a steep, steep gradient, you can actually see the slope when you stand there and look at it. So it's running down downhill, it's very quick. Right. It's not much good in June, it's too fast in June and, and until the middle of July. But towards the end of July, August, when the water drops, it, it can become a really good pool. In fact, in low water, it's a really good pool because it's got a, a nice flow. 
but it doesn't hold that many fish. However, the fish that it does hold quite often are big. You know, it, yes. it, there's been one or two big ones. Anyway, I was down there walking with the dog, and um, it, I had to walk across to a bit of an island, which is fish off, and I'm walking up the bank. But suddenly, in the middle of the pool, in this run that's about four, you know, three, four hundred meters long, it's sort of slightly like an elongated triangle with the thin part at the top being the head of the pool, and then the fat bit down at the bottom being the tail of the pool. So I'm about, you know, 100 metres up from the town suddenly what looked like a dolphin came up right. and it just big jeez and I've seen some big salmon and caught some big salmon blimey that wow so anyway for various reasons I couldn't go back um, I, I didn't go back that afternoon it was horrible weather and one thing and the next day uh, I was doing something else so it wasn't until the day after that but I knew the fish would still be in the pool Okay, yeah, yeah. So, so anyway, I go down. I thought, right, I'll get well above, you know, where I saw it show. I'll, I'll, I'll fish a little bit. I'll start a bit further down the pool when I, than I normally do because I've seen that fish and I wanted to, I wanted to catch it. So anyway, <clears throat> got tiny flying, little two, like, small, size 12 double up. And I've been, I think I've been fishing about six casts and suddenly the line just went suddenly tight and I'm starting to get almost dragged off my feet. Right, yeah, yeah. And I lifted the rod. I lifted the rod, and I saw a, a disturbance. Oh God, I looked it. Oh no. Anyway, <laughs> right. So, so, so anyway, I'm thinking, right, I ain't gonna land. I mean, I saw it. Oh, I'm not gonna land this. And I thought it ain't gonna be on because what I'd been doing was phoning my wife, who was up at the house doing some painting as it happened. And I've been phoning her, saying, "Can you bring the net down?" And she's like, "Oh God, no!" Again, she's coming down netting for me, and then. You know, off she go. Yeah. So, anyway, I thought, no, I'm not going to ring this straight away because I know what's going to happen. I'm going to lose this fish. It's just stupidly big. And it, it, it was going all over the river and behind rocks and God knows. Oh, no, no way. But anyway, 15 minutes later, it's still on. Right. And I right. thought, okay, I've got her on speed dial. So I hate speed dial. I said, it's me. Um, could you come down? She went, yeah, okay. I said, right, bring a net, but bring my net. And she went, okay. I said, no, make sure it's my net. And she knew then, Something because big. my net is yeah. my own little fishing net. Go in there and get my net and get your ass down here as yeah, quick yeah. as you can. And please, please hurry up, so you. Please down. hurry. <laughs> so she came down with her dad and a lad called Martin, a Polish lad, who was doing some work up here on the painting on that. And they witnessed it all. And, um, you know, it, it, what I remember most is that on, on a modern salmon fishing setup, you, you have you have your fly line, and behind that, you have what's called a shooting line. Right. Yeah. It's basically, it's like a slick, just single strand of flattened mono. Really, it's about forty pounds, but all it does is shoot. It's got no taper. It shoots out. Okay. Through the ring, and it goes through the rings better than backing goes, which would be a bit rough on it. <clears throat> anyway. So I could, for the first time ever, I felt that stuff stretch. When I lifted, trying to actually get some pressure on the fish, I could feel that line was stretching. Everything oh, was creaking. Squeaky bum time there, and, yeah. And Olimarit said to me, she said, she saw it. She said, what, what are we going to do? She said, I, 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 I can't net that. I said, listen, we ain't going to land this. 
I said, you just keep that net still and lift it when I tell you. Put it in when I tell you, lift it when I tell you. Don't yeah. move. Yeah. Don't move. And we'll see what happens. And if we get this, it's a massive bonus. But we won't. So we'll just chalk it down to experience. But you've seen it, haven't you? Said, yeah. Anyway, about 10 minutes later, I started walking steadily up the bank and it, it dropped in sweet as a nut first time. No way. And, and next thing is, we've got this thing and it just remember the size of its tail and, uh, you know, just just a massive. It was 136.2 centimetres long. Jesus. So it's, massive. It's a big fish, that. Four hour foot. <laughs> Unbelievable. And like, as you said, you, you probably weren't, you, you know, deep down, you're probably thinking like this, you're, you're just not going to get this. I'm not going to land this fish. Like, you know, you're probably just had accepted that. Like, but I'd say when you actually landed, I'd say, I'd say it was like, it must have been some, some feeling though. I know you've caught a lot of fish over your lifetime, but that's, that's, that's something else, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And, and it was nice that it happened. You know, when you think about the number of people that fish on Gala. Um, I mean, admittedly, I was fishing at a time when not many other people were. I'm not, I'm not hanging it up as a big achievement in that sense. Yeah. But just to actually have the experience of seeing it and knowing that these things exist and actually touching one, you know. Yeah. Actually feeling one on the line and knowing you're playing a monster. You know, that's, I knew that, you know, if you, if you had to pick a fish in the world, as, as a sort of ultimate achievement, a big fish of whatever species, we've all got our favourites. But but a giant salmon would be pretty rare. Yeah, yeah. So so in a way, yes, it wasn't something I set out to do. Far from it, you know. You can't with salmon fishing quite control it. Although, obviously, having seen the fish, that that that's what led to its downfall, really. But you know, it was just I'm just a very lucky bloke to have had it happen to me and, and to have experienced it and seen it. Yeah, and so, and I suppose, as you said, to know to know that for one, one these fish are there, and also that they can be caught and landed. So that that's yes. that proves that proves that point. I, I've, I've got to be honest, though. You know, I think if I took that fish in June, when when it was fresh in from the sea, um, and it would have been ten to fifteen pounds heavier, don't forget, probably. Jeez. Yeah, certainly ten pounds, more than ten pounds heavier. You know. Um, I don't think I'd have landed it. Yeah. And tell me, do you, is it just fly fishing there, uh, Matt, or do you use lure? Are you allowed to use lures over there, or is that a no-no? Yes, you are, actually. Um, I mean, we don't have lure fishing because, to be honest, it, 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 is a very, it is very, very good fly fishing water, and that's what our customers want, and they don't want people lure fishing on the other bank or... Yeah, you know, yeah. As yeah. I'm sure probably the lure fishers wouldn't, they'd probably be less worried about fly fishers going down before them. But with modern fly fishing methods now, you know, and some of the, the, the craft that's put into the sinking lines, you, you, you can present a fly of any size almost at any depth at a range of, you know, between 30 and 40 metres. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. You know, I, that, that, put, that, that puts it into the territory of, of spinning, um, you know. Yeah, it, it does. Yeah, I see. You know, I see some guys here salt water fly fishing um, for bass and whatnot. And you know, even in you know breezy conditions and big flies, and they can present it. Uh, it's nearly like a like a big lure now, you know. And um, you know, it's 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 not that much not that much different in presentation wise, anyway. No, well, I, one, I mean, I did a lot of pike fly fishing um, 
for a number of years, myself and Mick Brown, you know. Yeah. Um, and that was an interesting journey, which, to be honest, never fully got covered in the mainstream media because at that time there wasn't much interest in fly fishing for pike. I mean, over in Northern Ireland, you've got people like Alan Hanna, um, and sort of, you know, they were well known. And he had, you know, there's only about three pike flies. Now you look at them and they're amazing things. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and I'd started fly fishing and, and you know, I realised with the trout reservoirs I was fishing particularly that, you know, fly fishing would be a really great challenge to, to take on, to learn to cast those big flies and so on. And I did. And and in over a period of probably about 15 years, uh, I caught a number of very large pike fly fishing, you know, uh, including a couple of 30s. Yeah. And yeah. I, had a, I, had a, I had a great time doing it. And I fished, fly fished for bass, uh, for pike, for many predatory species of fish, actually. Um, and the, 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 the big difference between a fly and a lure is a, another form of artificial lure. Let's say one made of metal or wood or plastic, what we would think of as a lure. Yeah. Their movement is artificial. It, it, it will appeal to a fish that is curious or aggressive. But but no fish is going to be fooled by that very often. Yeah, yeah. It might the first couple of times it sees that movement or senses that movement, but it will quickly realise its its deviation from the natural, you know. I mean, when you start fishing with soft plastic lures, you use big colourful ones with massive paddle tails, don't you? you know, That's right, fish, yeah, the yeah. Wallop, the fish wallop them. Yeah. But yeah. within a year, but within a year, you're on the subtle-tailed ones, the longer, slimmer ones, in the duller colours. You know, we, we went through all this on Windermere back in the 90s. I remember going up there with Gord Burton. And, I mean, Gord would have it different because, you know, he's Gord. But the truth was, I was fishing with bulldogs, and he hadn't he hadn't seen them. I hadn't right. heard of them. Yeah. And uh, I said, you want to get on these, mate? These are bloody dynamite on here. And we were using... I mean, Windermere's not an easy lake to catch pike on lures. I mean, it's deep, and it drops off very quickly, and locations keep it. Anyway, <clears throat> we were using these bulldogs, and we're having it off. Black and yellow, black with a fire tail, orange and yellow, which they call sherbet. That was a winner. All yellow, we were using bulldogs and ugly joes. They were American musky lures in every garish colour you could think of. And, and for the first season, we had a birthday with the pike. Really? The second season, second season, we had to use black. If we didn't use something with black in it, it, it black with a, maybe a fire tail or maybe a little touch of green on it, but not a big high contrast black and green like the original one that we used, which would be black on the bottom and green on the top. This would be like just a little flash of colour or something, but basically black. And then by season three, we were having to use heavier and heavier ones, fishing deeper and deeper and deeper water. And by this stage, the fish really had been driven out into about 60 or 70 feet. Right. Um, and, and it was only by scraping the bottom. and fit, We ended up using colours like motor oil, purple, all the really low contrast, dull, earth-tony colours. Because 
we were fishing for educated fish. Yeah, I was just going to say now, that to you. Do you think was obviously that was because the fish had become wise to what was going on? They were they knew what was going on. Those bright colours, and as you said, they worked in the first year. But the fish became they they learned they they learned not to go near them. Yeah. So if you know, I I I believe in the principle with any lure that actually, and this this was originally written about in in salmon fishing by the great late great Hugh Falkus. And Falkus, when asked to describe the perfect salmon fly, and you can read all about this in his book on salmon fishing, is he describes the perfect salmon fly as an illusion of life. Something that's here and not here. Something that's here and there. Something that is half seen. And something particularly which is seen at the last second. Right. So Falkus' theory was that with a resident salmon, one that's been in the river a while, and it's, it's in a lie, it's not running up the river, but it's in a lie, typical salmon situation, as time goes by, the longer it's in the river, the, the more distance it's, its feeding memory becomes. So its reflex action is, is subdued. When it first came in the river, it might see a fly from 20 metres away and go and have a look at it. Yeah, yeah. But by now, a few days later... It's very wary, and within a week or two, it's extremely wary. And what you want is for the fish to see that fly at the last second. And Falkus put it beautifully when he said, if a fish could speak, it would say, what was that? Not, ah, there it is. That's fantastic, yeah. And in so doing, he perfectly described not only the key to the design of salmon flies in terms of if you want to talk about colour or tone, I'm not sure which salmon see it. And that's an interesting subject. But what, how do fish see colours? Yeah, we know that yeah. they'll respond to certain colours, but are they more interested in tone and contrast? Yeah, yeah, because that's, that's, that's really the big question. And that's something I... Here on... Yeah. Go on, mate, sorry. Yeah, no, it's something I really kind of think about a lot, you know. Is it colour or is it, you know, contrast? Is it dark or white? Or do we overthink it, you know? Um, and I think we do overthink it, but I suppose the thing is, we, we just don't know. We're only going by our experience. Well, with salmon fishing, what we know is that when we approach the end of the season here and the fish have been in here for a while, some of them have, or quite a few of them have, dull, small, earth tone flies. That's all we'll catch on, largely. Occasionally you'll get one, get aggressive with a Red Francis or something. And if the water comes up, you can have a couple of days of good fishing. But largely, you know, you're looking for those sort of, um, it's delicacy of presentation and the fish seeing the fly at the last minute. Now, if you take that to its full potential, and of course, the big variable is the colour of the water. Yeah. Right? So if you've got clear water, Gowler, its natural colour, the tint, for the first six weeks of the season is green. It's it's crystal clear, but it's slightly bottle green when we look down into it. And therefore, that's the reason why green flies do very well on this river, or flies with green in them. Why is that? Because the tone or the colour of the fly actually matches the inherent colour or tone of the water. Therefore, you've got your illusion of life. They can see bits of it, but they can't see the whole thing. Oh, that's fantastic! That is, this is great. Right? Yeah, yeah, I love, I love that. Yeah, the illusion. Now, yeah, yeah. in co- in coloured water, peaty water, which you get a lot in Ireland, and we get it here as well. In the second half of the season, 
our river colours up through forest runoff. Okay, so yeah. forest runoff is, is, is dirty largely. There's a lot of detritus in it and things like that and twigs and flotsam and jetsam. And so the water gets a tanning colour. It almost goes like Guinness. But you can still see in it. Yeah, yeah. This is the amazing thing. But it's black like Guinness almost. But you can, it's translucent. Now, in that situation, the water is disguising the fly for you. And above all else, you do want the salmon to see the fly, albeit, you know, you want it maybe to see it at the last minute, but you do want it to see it. And therefore, your higher contrast colours, your black and oranges, your brown and oranges, your black and yellows, that's the time to put them on. That's fantastic. Because then the, the river makes them see the fly at the last minute. <laughs> the crap in the water is still the same. But 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 the approach in the size of the fly, the the contrast of the fly, you know, the use of the colours, the use of flash. I mean, we drop any jungle cock eyes and flash for the last month of the season. Just pull them off if they're on the fly. Just take them out. Right, yeah, yeah. Because that, that you know, that, that that's one of the signs by which those resident fish think there's a deception. We just want to see it at the last minute. And what I always explain to the people that fish here is we've got, you know, some of the best salmon water you'll ever see. But but you need to take a sensible tactical approach to the fishing, you know, and you've got to think about what can you actually affect, you know. First of all, you've got to make a choice of line, you know, what 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 depth are you going to try and present the fly in, you know? Yeah high up near the surface or down near the bottom as slowly as you can, et cetera, et cetera. The next thing that really affects how you present the fly, obviously, is the fly itself. You're going to use a small one, a big one, a high contrast, a low contrast, et cetera. So it certainly extends into the choice of the fly. But then you've got to think about, well, what casting angle am I going to use? Because if you cast at 45, cast long at 45, all the fish is going to see is the arse of the fly. Ah, uh, yes, yes. Right? And so it's not its not going to see it very quickly. It's only going to see it at the last minute. So the arse of the fly. And it'll probably have it because it's, it reacts. It's given that split second but to make it, a decision. But, yeah. Yeah. But if it sees that fly two, three casts before, uh, the, one of the biggest failings of people that fish here, and, I, and I'll pass this advice on to anyone salmon fishing anywhere, is they don't take enough steps between casts and they show the fish to the the fly to the fish way, way before it passes over them. Right, yeah. So you you're giving the fish too much time to make a decision. Yeah. So when I'm, you know, when I'm drilling people, I mean, look, every theory's got exceptions. And, and I'm, I dare say that, you know, Falkus was very dogmatic. I mean, it was black or white with him. My way or the highway. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> and, and I don't try and do that. But what I do say to people is, here is a philosophy of fishing for salmon which works. It, whether it's because of what I'm saying or an entirely different reason, it won't stop you catching salmon. And in my opinion, it'll help you. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and even, Matt, you can, I can, I'm even just thinking, when you're saying that stuff, I'm thinking about how I can incorporate that into my bass fishing. And a couple of things that just kind of, you know, resonate with me that a lot of the big bass I've caught, right, have been caught on lures when the lure has just hit the water, you know, that's that's mm. second after the lure hits the water next minute it's like the fish is just a natural reaction he hasn't got he doesn't know what's going on he doesn't he can't see it properly he's just reacting to the the splash and he's on it straight away so right. he hasn't got time to kind of follow behind it or suss it out or whatnot you know it's just hitting the water fish reacts to it bang you know so it's 
again you're limiting the time the fish has to make a decision to decide whether is this is this real live or not you know yes i i think that's a great example and in fact you know we use the same principle in in the low water on gallop <clears throat> when the river's big this is this is another kind of misconception people have when the river's big the people who are less experienced and who can't cast very well have got their best chance of catching fish because largely the fish will be closer to you you know, yeah. on most really good salmon pools, the gentle water's on the inside and the fast water's on the outside. You know, yeah. and most of the time we're, we're casting across the river into the fastest water and letting that momentum of the current swing it round. But I know that when the river's up, really up, the fish going to be down the edge. Right. And so yeah, it's no yeah. good fishing with a, with a sinking line because by the time it gets in the edge, where it's only about two and a half, three foot deep, you'll be going underneath them. Yeah. The salmon don't them. go down. They don't go down to salmon fly. So this is one of the strange things. But certainly what I've discovered is is that if the water gets bigger, the salmon generally get closer to you. As it shrinks, they get further away from you, and you have to chase them in specific pockets where you have pace. And the reason that you need the pace is to create that deception, to create that illusion of life. Yeah, yeah. If you, if you if you retrieve salmon flies, you will get some takes. I've had it happen stripping in loads of times, but but generally speaking, the the movement they want is a fluttering drift across the pool. And if you haven't got enough current, you won't get the speed that's required to create the deception. And here on Gowler, we cast at quite square angles quite often to create speed. So it, it literally flies past the fish, and they've got to make a decision. Yeah, yeah. That's one of the key tactics. So what I've seen in the low water, when we're throwing into the rapids and we're in, literally fishing in white water, pockets in white water, we use little heavy bottle tubes, as we call them, and they weigh, you know, it's like putting, I don't know, a, a, an SSG shot on the end yeah. in weight. And it just plops in. It just plop. And the fish, the number of t times it's seized within a split second, and I do mean a split second, it's that quick. And you must have experienced that with bass. It's bang. And you think, how did they catch? How did they see it and catch it? But they do. Yeah, yeah. Straight on. As soon as that hits the water, bang, they're straight in. Yeah, yeah. Their natural reaction. To... Can't, they can't control it. It's because yeah. it's an instinct. So, you know, if you look in, like, if I was fishing for bass a lot in salt water, I haven't done a lot of fishing for bass, sadly. I've caught some and I've really enjoyed it. But I, I would almost certainly predominantly fly fish not because i think it's a snobby thing to do but because i think if you're going to fish with artificials as opposed to bait if you can learn to cast you'll catch loads more fish yeah i, I see i see some of the guys i see the fly guys i'll be down and fishing with the fly guys and i see some of the flies they just they just show me the, the, the fly, how the fly sits in the water and it's it's just so much more natural looking than any lure could possibly be Yes, and, 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 you know, we've got salmon flies. The, the, mobile, the, the way we build the wings in stacks, with short and then the long, short at the bottom and the longest materials on the top, and then the throat to kind of balance it out. It's, it's a teardrop shape. If you look at the fly from the side, from the top, from underneath, it's a, it's a willow leaf teardrop shape. Not, not nine times out of ten. Yes, right? yes. And, and it's virtually part of it, you know, if you, if you do it right, you can make it more or less visible by playing with the contrast, but it's movement. These things swim in virtually no current. Yeah. I mean, if you could stick them in the tide, they just sit there swimming. 
I mean, eventually you'd have a problem because they sink to the bottom. But but you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. You, you don't you work. don't have to do a whole lot with them to get to get them to move. Like they'll just move swim no. themselves, really. And you know, you can move them. You can move them dead slow. And sometimes when fish are in a dour mood, moving them dead slow is the key. Yeah. And you'll still get even if you're moving them dead. If you move any other type of lure dead slow, slow, it'll either lose its action, or it'll sink to the bottom and get stuck. Yeah, yeah. But if you've got a neutrally balanced fly on something like an intermediate, clear intermediate line, it's going to hang. And you can just make long, steady pulls or little short, erratic ones. And I'm telling you now, if you've got a good fly tire, lures, all of the forms of artificial lures can't live with that. They can't get anywhere near it. But the reason that they're used more often is because it's easier to fish with them. To fish with these flies, you've got to put in the hard miles it is more difficult. You will at times have more limited range, but you won't have more limited depth unless you're fishing really deep. Yeah. If you're fishing down to like 12 or 15 foot nowadays, you've got no problem. You can get down there if that's what you've got to do. Um, the lines exist to do that. Beyond that, when you're getting into like vertical jigging territory and you know all that sort of stuff, slightly different thing. But, but for fishing sort of medium to shallow water... I'm totally convinced that a good fly fisherman whoop your ass every day of the week if he's got the right flies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, provided he can reach them. Provided he can reach them. That's yeah, yeah. the key. Yeah, as as you said, going back to your, you know, testing the anglers. No, depending on your skill level, are you how good you are? You know. Yes. Well, it is that. I mean, the thing, you know, when I started pike fly fishing, I was just thrilled to catch any pike. I mean, no, they were big or small. It was, and seeing them following the fly, the, seeing the way they take the fly, which is completely different to the way I thought it was. You know, you imagine them closing their door, jaws shut, and, and they don't. They flare their gills, the mouth opens, and they suck the fly in, they inhale it. And of course, a fly is much easier to suck in than a piece of rubber. Yeah, true. It just flies yeah. in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Woof yeah. it in there, mate. And you just pull that line tight. And when you've got them, you've got them on a single hook. Yeah. You know, um, there's, there's, Honestly, seriously, give it a go. I'm, I'm, listen, I'm not being a you know fly fishing purist here because I love lure fishing. I absolutely love it, especially in the winter months. But um, cast the cast with predatory fish. I'm telling you, fly fishing. If you've got a good fly angle in the right box of flies, they can do some serious damage. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and I said, as and I know you've like you have fished for with lures, um, and I know it's the post. I think you posted up yesterday that, you know, even before kind of lures were popular, you were fish with bait, and you always kind of believed bait was, you know, um, I think you mentioned that bait was, um, you know, um, you know, lures weren't weren't as or, or bait was inferior to lures, and and that kind of changed, I suppose, in the nineties when you became you know when you kind of got into lure fishing more, and I suppose that must have been a really exciting time to see the kind of lures coming on and testing them out, and you probably kind of, you know, you were probably kind of the first to kind of uh, use certain lures as well back then. I was actually well, the South and Mick, and then I, you know, I can tell you the story about it came about if you want. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> Well, I think it was sometime in the 90s. Uh, I decided that I'd only ever caught one Zander. And that was from a place called Ferry Meadows in Peterborough. Or near Peterborough on the River Neen. And it's basically an oxbow lake, you know. Hmm. 
And I went there with Mick Rouse from Angling Times to do a feature, and I caught one fishing about an 80 yard range, effectively a still water on a piece of bait. And great, you know. So, anyway, it came to my attention that I knew there were Xander in the seven, in the lower seven, but it also came to my attention that there were Xander in the Warwickshire Avon, which is a very nice, slower flowing river and a little bit more intimate. And I thought, well, to catch my first Xander, at that time, no one spoke about them. There were very few caught. Chris LeBrant was catching a few around Tewkesbury. But, and, and he's a lovely fella, Chris, but I mean, he wouldn't tell me any of his secret spots or anything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Even though I tried. I think, yeah. um, but what he did say was, he said, well, look, you know, fish around Tewkesbury, fish the lower eight. And so I literally put a pin on the map and thought, well, I'll start there. You know, and all I had, and I thought, no, I'm going fishing for Zander. I know there aren't that many in the river. You know, there's not one in every swim. There's probably, you know, some areas, there's not one for a mile or two. And that is indeed the case. So I thought, how am I going to find them? Because there's no, it was in the days before social media. So there was nobody sort of writing about it. It wasn't in the fishing magazine. Yeah, you just had to get out and put in the hard miles in yourself. Well, uh, about a year before, I've been chatting to a guy who worked at Shimano. This is how long ago it was. I was still at Shimano. And I met a chap called Benny Meisler. And he was a Belgian fella. Salesman. Really clever bloke. And we got talking about predator fishing at the time. You know, it was all bait fishing. He said to me, he said, I'll tell you now, Matt. He said, you've got this completely wrong, you know. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you're obsessed with this bait fishing. He said, it's rubbish compared to lure fishing. He said, uh, I said, no, 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 no. I said, the lure fishing might be all right, but conditions are good. He said, my friend, he said, I, I can outfish you with a lure against bait any day of the week, any conditions. He said, he said, go and find out. He said, and then talk to me. And the next day, he came into the exhibition and he gave me two lures. And they were both soft plastic, plastic lures rigged on a jig head. Right. With a little, with a little fireball stinker wire down the top. I thought, oh, I know they went in the loft, you know, these addresses, straight in the loft, you know, never looked at them again. And yeah, I yeah. Oh, and I thought, now Benny was telling me, if I want to catch Xander, I should use these jig type lures. I've got a couple of them. But right, I'll take some spinners. I'll, I'll take some spinner baits because Mick said he'd seen he'd known of a few caught on the fence on spinner baits. I took some small spinner baits, and I took these things that Benny gave me. Right, so yeah. I got up the Warwickshire in, and and I've been fishing about ten minutes trying to work out how to fish these rubber things. Like I, I knew you should tap them on the bottom; it was obvious, really. So I, I'm, but I was using massive lifts, you know, like you do when you first use them. Like, or massive this lot, you know. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. Directing, directing the traffic or, or an air traffic control, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> you know. Yeah. So I'm waving the arm, I'm wafting this arm, bang, suddenly I've got a bite. Well, it's just under about three pounds. Oh, blimey. I've only had about six cats. Anyway, that afternoon, I caught three. Yeah. And um, the biggest one was about seven pounds, and I phoned up me. You ain't going to believe this, mate. They're gone. I said, I've had three Xanders today. He said, oh, where? I said, down the Warwickshire Raven. Love you. But yeah. I said, but it's better than that. He said, go on. I said, I caught them on lures. And there was a silence. That must have been and brilliant. Said, I'd say that must have been, that must be a really exciting I, time. 
Well, you, I mean, the, the Duke is like the head boy of the school, mate. I mean, he's my hero. So, I mean, we're very close friends, but he's my hero. So, yeah. when the Duke says, when, when you stop the Duke, you know, yeah. So I said, yeah, he said, uh, were you fishing for him? I said, yeah. I said, honestly, I was, yeah. I said, I went up and up. I said, tell you what, the key was these lures that Benny Miser gave me. He said, oh, those soft plastic things. I said, yeah, that's them. He said, I've got some of them. He said, I've used them for pike a couple of times, but I was just winding them in. And uh, I said, well, I've been bouncing off the bottom. I've had these, these guns on them. He said, oh, right, okay. He said, I'll go down the middle level tomorrow and I'll have a crack with them. Anyway, phoned me up that night. He said, I'd run a seven and one of eight. Wow. Bloody hell. So, we very quickly got into the soft plastic thing and we were in, in the river, mate. I mean, I'm just seriously ridiculous fishing. Really? You yeah. Know, 60 yeah. fish a day per pike and zander. We had a lot. <laughs> and, and we had absolutely unbelievable fishing for a while. It lasted for about three seasons. And then, at that time, we were fishing on Blissfield for a while for the pike. And it was quite a limited field of people. You had to know someone, had to know someone. And anyway, there weren't that many pipes, but there were some big And we took these soft plastic lures down, me and Mick. And at that time, we were buying them from the Bass Pro Shop in the USA right, and yeah. Cabela's. And then I was buying other lures from Roly and Helen's Musky Shop in Wisconsin. Like, really strange stuff. And, um... We took them to the field, and of course, we both had 30s on them. Wow. And we had people literally with binoculars trained on us. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and the following year, they couldn't go out and get them for the rest of the trials. We got two more days. They couldn't go and get them because they weren't any. But by the next year, we came back. You got Andy Lush and um, one or two others on there with them. And then a few of the other came out to got hold of them, and, and uh, a large number of fish were caught on them as a result. And by that time, then, the cat was out of the bag. Word and I was remember out, yeah. We went to the seven, and the seven was different, actually. It's harder to fish that style because of the snags in the seven. But we developed uh, trolling techniques on there. Um, okay. With solid lures, which, uh, you know, even to this day, I won't talk about it too much, but but let's put it this way. We, we, we caught a lot of, of big sander. Um, and it was very effective. So, yeah, I mean, we, we were right, me and the dude. I mean, even the ultralight stuff, you know, um, I've got an old film somewhere of me fishing with these tiny little um, two-centimetre shads and, Catching a twenty pound pike and a nine pound zander and a two pound perch all in the same day. Oh man! It's, and and those like as you were saying, that's going back to the nineties and 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 that's so popular now. You see the guys fishing with all these little little micro jigs and little soft plastics for perch. It's you know all the street fishing has just exploded. It's so popular now, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, you know, we we were doing it in the nineties into the sort of early two thousands, I suppose. Probably started it in the early nineties. And, um, I mean, we never actually commercially really capitalised on it. Uh, I think the problem was at the time, you know, Nick and I both got um, sponsors. And, yeah. You know, that's the reality of life if you want to survive 
there's a professional fisherman, so-called, you want to live that lifestyle, you, you, you've got to accept a couple of things. I mean, one, you've got to accept you're not going to earn lots of money. There isn't lots of money in fishing. Yeah, you, you know, yeah. You're not going to build up a huge personal pile of wealth. Nor will you be free of the financial pressures that other people have to do. But if you take a decision to sort of opt out and to do a, a quite a radical career like that, then there, there, there's quite a lot of risk involved in that. And I think the people who, who uh, you know, sometimes cr- cr- criticise so-called pro-anglers, um, I don't think they're quite aware of that. You know, no, nobody's there thinking, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll try and rate my sport or whatever money I can get from it. You know, yeah, yeah. or I'll, I'll, try and get, I'll, I'll recommend this bait because if I recommend this bait, I'll get five grand more. And, uh, and I'll tell you a true story. And people, I'll give, you know, give you another exclusive. Um, many, many years ago, I'm going back into the 90s again, probably, actually. I was approached by an organisation which had developed a chemical product um, based on pheromone research, and one of the byproducts it was being used as a fish attractor. Right. Now, the very large amounts of venture capital funding, I don't know how much, but we're talking serious amounts of money here. And I was approached by staff I knew very well, um, had a lot of trust, very senior figure in the industry, said, listen, I'm heading this thing. You should come and have a look. We want you. They've asked me we should recruit, and I've told them we've got to recruit you at all costs. So yeah. I got invited. I got invited down to the CFAS headquarters over in, I think it's in Lowestoft, a long time ago. So I went down there. There was one or two other members of the press. It was behind closed doors, but effectively we had a group of scientists with some fish tanks behind, and they've got all different types of fish. Some had freshwater fishing, like carp and things, and some of them had, you know, cod and, you know, right, those yeah. sort of things. Mackerels and things. Anyway, so these scientists stand up saying what people don't realise is pheromones are very important. Fish respond, respond to pheromones in the same way that humans do. It's not something you can fight. We don't believe that this product will trigger a hunger response in but we believe, well, we know, or we, we think we can prove that releasing all these pheromones into the area will, will attract large numbers of fish who will come to investigate and then say, like the bait, you know, they'll eat it. Yeah. So that was the theory, you know, and that was a huge claim. So then they turn to this, like, here's the proof of the pudding. So they've got these little pipes in the tanks with holes in them, and they, they basically start putting some of this, this liquid into the tank, and, and it's dyed. I said, normally it's not dyed, but we've, we've dyed it so you can see it. That's a bit of a puff. You can imagine as sort of this colourful dye mixing in with the water and, and, you know, it's mixing around. And, and the fish swim up to the pipe. And they say, there you go, look, they, they're straight away. They've swum up to the pipe. Yeah. And I've listened to this stuff. And anyway, we get to the end, and this chap said to me, have you got any questions or observations? And I said, no. I said, well, I said, look. I said, fish in a tank like that, that have nothing to look at but the same thing all the time. That I could go and piss in that water and they'd come and have a sniff. 
Yeah, yeah. I said, that's just the reality of a caged animal seeing something when it's bored. Not, I said, that, that doesn't prove anything. You could spray anything in the water. And, and, and they'll probably come and try and find out what it is um, in that situation. But that's very different from an ocean or a river or a lake where you've got much larger volume of water, you know, and the fish are free to go where they want. So for me, the acid test is, will it catch more fish? If it catches more fish, then it's proved its point. But until it, you know, I said, uh, what I'm saying is I need to use it and see it working and believe it works in order to progress any further. So yeah, yeah. They, started, they started giving me this stuff and I, I, I tried to find ways of putting it in the bait. Pouring it onto maggots or boilies or paste was pointless because it just washed off and yeah. washed downstream. It was a very thin liquid. It was based on an alcohol base. It just buggered off downstream, you know. Yeah. So even if it was working, it probably took the fish with it. So then <clears throat> I thought about trying to boil it. I said, no, you can't do that. It'll denature it, you can't eat. And in the end, they were delivering it, right, in these, like, laboratory silver aluminium test tubes, right. which I was meant yeah. to keep at a certain temperature, right? I said, I'm meant to be mixing bloody ground bait and boiling with this. Yeah. I'm going to boil them with an egg. <laughs> you know, I said, the anglers are not going to turn up to the, to the bank with... with, with you know, like they're using their little silver cast, they're just not going to do it. You'll have to set up a little lab in so your anyway. fishing, fishing room. Yeah. Oh, and, and, and then, then we had some field tests and they came down. Well, I remember we had one at the community fishing room. And, you know, basically, I lamped a load of fish out of the bloke. They said, oh, I told you it was brilliant. And I said, John, it don't mean anything. I said, if I just fish plain maggots, I'd have slayed them in here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I said, honestly, mate, it doesn't mean anything. And he said, well, how long are you going to take, you know, to, to make up your mind? And I said, like, longer until I'm sure. And he said, look, you know, and it got to the point then after about 12 months, I think. And, I, you know, I was just at the point of just not believing, really. I think I'd exhausted to my own satisfaction. Yeah, that well, it wasn't practical. Well, that's a that's a and, well, and that's a credit to yourself, really, because you could have just turned around and grabbed the money and say, "Yeah, this is great. I'll push this out. Give me, give me, give me money." And here we go. This is a great product. And you know, you could have you, know, you could have went you know down that road. Was? You know, you know what the deal was. What? Just to put my name to it. Yeah. This is the deal I turned down, right? Yeah. And I've been accused in in newspapers and magazines and critics and all that sort of thing, only interested in himself. The deal I turned down was 1% of world revenue, which included its application in long lining and other commercial fish applications, plus 40 grand a year. Right. Wow. Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. It could have been very, very easy. easy. Easiest thing in the world would have been for you to say, oh, yeah. Easy yeah. money. And, it, and if I told people that, that to put it on their bait and everything else, they catch a load of fish, the vast majority of people would come back and said, yeah, it works. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And, and at the end of the day, there'd have been a few cynics saying, no, 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 it doesn't work. But the vast majority of people say, well, I think you should try it. Oh, yeah. And it would have, I have no doubt it would have been a huge sales success. But the point is, I had to live with myself, and I knew it was a lie. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's... Or a... not necessarily a lie, but I just couldn't find a way of using it in a practical fishing situation that would, 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 would you know, that you could, just as a normal person going fishing you could use it it just wasn't practical so in the end you know whatever the ins and outs of it i turned it down i think you know with with, with things like and 
you know, to make sense, right? but especially with terminal risks, um, you know, tackle. I, I think most of it's of a very good standard nowadays. Really. Yeah, yeah. Bank yeah. additives have always been a very quasi-science subject. A lot of smoke and mirrors. I've always been very suspicious of them. But now Angler's probably experimented more with them on a range of baits than I have. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I've done so to the point where I think there's a few really interesting things that are a bit off the wall. But most of the time, is the edge big enough? Is there a secret ingredient? You know, there's one or two, there's one or two areas. Like, for example, if you're fishing on the surface of a carp, a really unbeatable flavour is Rod Hutchinson's Scopex, the original one. It, it, it's just brilliant, just floaters. And I can think of a few examples like that. Yeah, um, yeah, that would actually work know, like, like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like pineapple, which is based on amyl butyrate. That's very good with things like bream and roast. And, and you can get some, some results. But quite often, you know, you've always got to say to yourself, well, would I have caught the same if I hadn't used it, you know? And the yeah. answer probably is most often, yeah, you probably would. So you can, I think, become over-scientific. But yeah. let me ask you, I mean, you're obviously a keen uh, fisherman. If you had to use just one lure for the rest of your life, what would it be? Yeah, like that's that is a big question, you know, and and like like a lot of lure anglers sure have a room full of lures, but the reality is I'll just use the same probably half a dozen lures for the whole season, you know, and out of that half a dozen I clip on the same two or three nearly all the time, you know, that kind of way, unless I'm experimenting with something else, but um yeah, it, it's it just goes back to kind of you know confidence and what works for you and what works for me might not work for you and but you what works for you is 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 good as well you know so it's very hard to kind of it's very hard to get it all it's very hard to say like you know this is you know this is this is a better lord than that because i don't think we can say that you know i think i, I think for me there's a few there's a few classics which i, I would say would be i mean if I was limited to just one lure for the rest of my life, it would be a wrap and a super shad wrap. Yeah, yeah. Because I've, I've caught more big fish, talking Xander, Pike, Tarpon, Snapper, Wahoos, all sorts, um, big perch, um, all on wrap. I mean, not all on, I've got fish with many types of lures, but I'd say the wrap and a super shad wrap, brilliant fold dive down to about 12, 14 foot, perfect. Yeah, yeah. Crank it, stop it, float, it'll dip. You know, and it's like everything else. The more you fish with the lure, the more you get out of it. You know when to make those little taps and, you know, when to speed it up slightly and so on. So, but it all things up, I'd say that. And then I think, to be honest, if you're looking for a bite, you know, and I'm talking freshwater predominantly, a coarse fish, um, you know, uh, a Meps or a Rappel of Vibrax number four or number five. Right, just yeah. About every, just about, you know, old spinner. They'll catch just about every predatory fish that swims. Yeah. No, look at Matt. That's brilliant. Um, look at, I really appreciate your time and I kept you over the time I, I'd said and uh, I just really enjoyed chatting to you. Fantastic knowledge there. And right, we could right. do, we could do, you could probably do 50 podcasts with all the knowledge you have there and it's, um, it's really great to hear from you and hear you're doing so well out in Norway and um, look forward to seeing more of your adventures in the future. Well, thank you, Cormac, and tight lines, my friend. Thank you, Matt. Mind yourself. Speak soon. Yep. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.